Hello, and thank you for joining LTC NatChat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, APACN. I'm Jesse McGill, Curriculum Development Specialist with APACN, and I'm here today with Jennifer LeBay, Curriculum Development Specialist with APACN, to discuss some of the most pressing questions about the Draft RAI User's Manual, version 1.18.11. Welcome, Jennifer. I'm happy to join you today, Jesse. On May 18, 2023, over 1,400 people attended the APACN live webinar, Overview of the Draft REI User's Manual version 1.18.11, effective October 1, 2023. Attendees asked over 100 questions during the presentation. We are here today to provide answers to some of these questions, so let's dive right in. Let's start with some questions from Section A. Jennifer, one of the first questions that you were asked was regarding race and ethnicity. The attendee asked, what are the next steps if the resident who was unwilling to answer their ethnicity initially later is determined to lack the capacity or is unable to answer? Could we then ask the family or look into the medical history? That's a good question. So one of the things that we have to be looking at is when are we asking this question? And this actually is a question that we have sent off to CMS as well, asking should we be asking this question on each assessment? Because normally we would just ask that initially and it would kind of carry over in the electronic health record to the subsequent assessments. But in this case, when the resident status changes, it would be appropriate to ask that question of the family if at a later assessment that resident is not able to answer the question. Thank you, Jen. It'll be interesting to hear what CMS says on that topic. Another question we had on ethnicity and race asks if these items will be included on the entry MDS record, and if so, who should assess these items? Yes, race and ethnicity are going to be included on the entry tracking, and who completes these items is going to be up to the facility. CMS does not tell us who is responsible for filling out each section of the MDS, so that would have to be a facility decision as to who would complete those items. Thank you. Another ethnicity question, how is ethnicity determined and can more than one ethnicity be selected? That's an interesting question. So ethnicity is based on what the resident identifies as. The resident doesn't have to be born in a certain country or area in order to identify as an ethnicity. And there could be multiple ethnicities. Parents could be from different areas. Grandparents could be from different areas. And it could go back even further. It's really going to be based on what that resident's individual answer is. And there is no specific criteria for that. Thank you. Another question for Section A, but moving to a different MDS item. What is the time frame for A1805 entered from for an inpatient stay? So when we're looking at whether a resident is coming directly in from an inpatient stay, that would be directly prior to that entry date at A1600. So immediately prior to coming into the facility. Thank you. 
The next question is on the medication reconciliation and looking at that subsequent provider. And the attendee asked, would the home health agency be the subsequent provider for A2121, or would it be the primary care physician in the community? That's a great question. So there are coding tips in this section of the draft REI user's manual that do tell us there are going to be some subsequent providers that are not in that list in A2105 of the MDS. And if that is the case, you would just need to refer back to one of the providers that is in that list. So if they are also receiving home health agency services upon discharge, that would be the subsequent provider that would be referenced for this item. Thank you for that clarification, Jen. During the webinar, we also had a lot of questions from Section GG. So let's move over to Section GG and, and talk about some of those questions we received in this area. One of the attendees asked, will every over-assessment require a Section GG collaboration for usual performance to be completed and documented just as we do with the Medicare PPS assessments? Yes, that is true. So starting October 1st, Section GG is going to be required for all OBRA assessments, not just the PPS assessments and not just for states who have selected to use PDPM items. This is going to be for all OBRA assessments. This is going to be used in place of Section G, which is retired as of October 1st, 2023. So this is going to be the only assessment on the MDS of functional status. And all of the rules that we are currently using for data collection and documentation with the PPS assessments is going to apply for the OBRA assessments as well, starting in October. Thank you for that response. You know, another question again on data collection, because this is such an area of focus and concern regarding section GG data and the collection of that data. The attendees stated, I understand that we should gather the information from nursing and rehab staff, but are there items that we can get just from rehab? Absolutely. So CMS does say in the manual that it should be a multidisciplinary effort. So not just from nursing, not just from rehab, but there are certainly going to be some items that rehab is going to assess in that three-day assessment period that is not going to be assessed by nursing. So certainly those items can be assessed and documented and gathered just looking at the rehab documentation. And the same goes with nursing as well. There may be some items that rehab does not assess that will only be looked at by nursing in that observation window that we just would look at the nursing documentation. So it certainly could be a collaboration, but it doesn't have to be a collaboration if it doesn't make clinical sense. The next question is actually a follow-up from that exact question and such a great answer. So we know we can get that information just from rehab. But for the information that we may get from just rehab, such as walking 10 feet on uneven surfaces or the steps questions, are we required to complete three days of documentation and have that from rehab? 
Oh, that's a great question. Yes. So the three-day assessment period, they call it, or the look-back period, observation period, that three-day window that we're looking at the Section GG items, it doesn't have to occur across the entire three days. So if the resident only did the steps one time, and that's all they're going to do during that three days, you can code their usual performance based on that one time or if they've done it a couple of times. It doesn't have to be across the entire three days. Now, certainly, you know, if the team is working on things and more information is there in that three-day window, certainly you could use the full three days, but it's not required. Another thing we have to remember to consider is for that admission observation period for your admission assessment or your five-day PPS assessment, that's going to be looking at their status prior to the benefit of any services, whether it be rehab services or nursing restorative or any kind of services provided clinically that would help improve their abilities. So it doesn't have to be that full three days. Excellent. Such great coding tips and clarification. So we have one more section, GG question. How would you code a resident with dementia who is able to walk 150 feet from room to dining room and sit in a chair for a meal, but is unable to walk 150 feet and make two turns due to cognitive abilities and is unable to follow instructions? Okay, well, that's interesting. So one thing I would be curious about when a resident is walking that long distance to the dining area, are they doing turns in there and we're not even thinking about it that they are actually turning into the dining room and then maybe turning another 90 degree turn to get to their table so it's possible that they are actually doing those turns and maybe we're not even thinking about it because we're thinking about testing it in you know a testing situation we need to look at practical application as well. A lot of these things happen just naturally as things are occurring. But another thing to consider, if it is just a straight shot to that dining area, if the resident's able to do that themselves, if we have to provide some contact guard assistance to guide them to do the turns, that's part of that consideration as well. So as long as the resident is still up on their feet and walking, if that helper is able to guide them physically to do those two turns and they're able to do that, then that would be part of the consideration for coding their usual performance as well. So much to consider when we're coding Section GG. Thank you for those clarifications. The next question is from Section K. If a resident has a feeding tube on admission, thus they came in with the feeding tube, would you choose admission while not a resident or while a resident for K0520B? That's a great question, Jesse. It's important to understand with K0520, there are now two new columns that have been added on admission, column one and column four at discharge. On admission and at discharge are only completed for a PPS stay. So on admission would be for that five-day PPS assessment, which is looking at days one through three of that SNF PPS stay, starting with A2400B. While not a resident and while a resident are also completed 
for those admission assessments. So if we have a combined admission and PPS five-day assessment, you are going to be looking at the on admission column as well as while not a resident and while a resident. So it is possible for all three of those to be checked for that resident if they had that feeding tube in days one through three of that SNF PPS stay, if they had that feeding tube prior to admission to the facility, and if they continued that feeding tube while they're a resident during that observation period. In addition, if that resident also happened to have a PPS discharge assessment assigned with that one combination assessment, you would be assessing on admission in the first three days of the stay while not a resident, while a resident, and then at discharge would be the last three days of that PPS stay. So it really depends on which assessment type you are completing and what that look back period is. But if that combination happened, all four of those columns could be checked. Thank you, Jennifer. There's so much that goes into coding just K0520B. All right, let's jump to section M. A great question for M0100. A scar over bony prominence. Is this any scar or do you have to know that that scar is related to a healed pressure ulcer? That is a great question. So when we're looking at that bony prominence, especially if it's a resident that we don't know, it could be from anything. It could be from a pressure ulcer. It could be from surgery. It could be from anything. What we need to understand is underneath that scar, the tissue is not going to be the same as if there was never an injury there. So whether it's from a pressure ulcer or another type of injury, that tissue is not going to be the same. So we are going to consider that because we don't know ultimately what the cause was and there could be a completely different tissue underneath that scar because we don't know how deep that wound was. Thank you. That's such great clinical considerations. All right, let's jump to section N now for the new item coding indication of use for medications. So for this section, is the indication of use asking for the diagnosis or could it be symptoms such as edema? Great question. Yeah, so although we don't have a specific definition in the draft REI user's manual, looking at the state operations manual, that does give us a definition of that indication of use. And basically what we're looking at is, has the physician or non-physician extender given us a reason why this med is being used and a clinically appropriate reason for why this medication is being used? And this could be a diagnosis. It could be also a symptom, so such as as edema. It doesn't necessarily have to be a specific ICD-10 code itself, although I know a lot of the software programs and the electronic health records do have an option to select an ICD-10 code, but you can do that for symptoms as well. So edema certainly would be an appropriate reason as long as the physician or physician extender has indicated that as the indication for use for that medication. Thank you, Jen. All right, let's move to Section O. Section O also had a lot of changes with the draft REI, so of course we had several questions in this area. The first is under IV access. Does that include a port line for hemodialysis? 
Wow, that's a great question. So what we need to consider when we're looking at IV access for hemodialysis, yes, that is going to be IV access. But then when we're looking at the subcategories for the on admission and at discharge, which would be completed on the PPS five day on admission column A, or the PPS discharge, what we need to look at is this a peripheral, midline, or central? So we would need to know, depending on where that port is located, if it's an AV fistula versus a central line port, we would need to have a little more clinical information about the location of the port before we could determine whether that was a midline or centrally located port. So we would need a little more clinical information about that, but it definitely is IV access. Thank you. And another IV access question. How would you code a resident with an implanted pump under IV access? Yes. Yeah, so this would be for IV access, same situation. We would need to know the location. But one thing we do need to consider is looking at what type of pump it is. So when we're looking at IV medication, intrathecal and baclofen pumps and intraspinal pumps all count as IV. So that would be something we would need to know what type of pump is it. Now, if it's a subcutaneous pump, certainly that's going to be different. But those implanted pumps into one of those areas would count as IV access. All right. And our final question, Jennifer, is how are we going to count and capture the timing for a resident on oxygen at O0110 C2 and C3, which is our continuous and intermittent oxygen use? And will we need staff to sign off hourly in order to count the 14 hours needed for continuous oxygen use? Great question. So yes. In the coding tips and the instructions in the draft REI user's manual, it does say that continuous oxygen is oxygen that is delivered continuously for at least 14 hours during the day. And then on the opposite side of that, the PRN would be intermittently less than 14 hours a day. There is no instruction that tells us we have to sign off for that in any kind of manner. So that, again, is going to be something that facilities are going to want to make that determination as to how are they going to determine that. A lot of times in the medication administration record or the treatment administration record, wherever this is being documented, it's being signed off on every shift and the orders that themselves are going to say continuous or PRN. So that's a point we need to look at as well. And talking with the physician, looking at that PRN use, are we going to be delivering this for an extended amount of time. And the facilities are going to have to determine individually how they're going to keep track of that. That's not something that CMS has provided specific guidance on. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for all the great information you shared with us today. This information will certainly help our listeners who are navigating the upcoming MDS changes and preparing for October 1st. It was my pleasure, Jesse. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. For more resources and tools for nurse assessment coordinators, please visit our website at www.aapacn.org. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the LTC NAC Chat podcast.